Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. I'm Will Mallard and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jilly Barlow. Great to have you on the show, Jilly. Fantastic to be here, Will. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, Jilly, we might ask you to give a, a brief overview of what you're up to now so the, the listeners have a flavour of uh, what's happening in, in your property world as of today. And uh, then we'll go back to the beginning, um, if you don't mind. Nope, sounds great to me. So right now, um, I'm very involved in helping people, uh, teaching people, helping people to understand the simplicity of property and that it doesn't have to be complicated. I think that what I'm loving doing at the moment is helping everybody that wants to get involved. I'm totally passionate about making everybody realize they have the opportunity, the ability, the capability if they get their mindset right that it's not only for the rich any longer, that there are strategies strategies out there that enable and able people of, of every, whatever their situation is. So whether they've just come into the country and they can't yet get a credit card, whether they've got heaps of debt, whether they've not been educated and, and they've come out at school at 16, just as I did, whether they're 116, it, it gives opportunity right now for anybody and everybody to invest in property. And my passion is to really help people. And the bizarre thing is people say to me, well, what, you know, what sort of area of people, what, who are you trying to help? And I want to, I want to help the ex-prisoners. I want to help the has-beens. I want to help the women. I want to help the men because they are so often the ones that are called to uh, create salaries because one thing they'll never do is have babies. I want to help the young adults who have been told that in 20 years there'll be 50% less jobs, although it's far less time than that. What should they be training in? I want to know that they're going to grow up seeing their children um, change and grow. But I also want to help the middle-aged who are struggling because they have got four children or five children and are now being made redundant. So basically, I have a heart to help everybody and I want everybody to know that they can do this. I think right now my my um, a lot of my teaching and helping is, is related to mindset um, and you'll learn soon what my mindset was growing up and going through life. Um, but I think that, that that's where I am at the moment. I am obviously doing property myself. And, and uh, I always forget to do it at the end of the show, so I'm going to do it at the beginning of the show. Uh, how can someone best get hold of you, Jilly? I've got a website called jillybarlow.com, uh, jilly, G-I-L-L-I-E, barlow, B-A-R-L-O-W.com. 
So I'm very right. simple to get hold of because it's Jilly Barlow and everything. Yeah, so Jilly with a, a G, Barlow.com. Uh, so, so look it up. And But it didn't all begin at, at that that point, did you? Like you, you didn't uh, aspire to be a, a teacher of property investment education uh, as a four-year-old. What, what, what was life like as a four-year-old? Well, I was born into a menagerie of animals. I'm one of four girls and I'm a, the last, one of the last two because I'm an identical twin. Um, growing up was very volatile, um, very, very hard. Um, but we were blessed in that we were born into uh, a lovely farmhouse with an acre of land. Uh, my, my mother and father came over from Kenya. Um, my two older sisters were born in Kenya and uh, my father was in the um, civil service, as was my grandfather. Um, my other grandfather was a, bank, was a manager of Barclays Bank, which actually back then was quite a job. Um, and uh, they came over after independence, they got thrown out. And my twin sister and I were born in Dorking, not quite the same as um, Kenya, but there you go, uh, in 1966. <laughs> and um, we, yeah, so we were born, uh, brought up from the age of 18 months in this wonderful farmhouse with lots of acreage and uh, plenty of um, outside living and, and just, just a lovely place. But as I said, it was very volatile. Um, Sarah and I were really rubbish at school. Um, Jane was my older sister, very, very bright, very good at school. Caroline was sort of like in the middle and Sarah and I were just like a nightmare. Um, and I think that it became, it was very much harder because we were identical and teachers have pride and they don't like not knowing who they're telling off. Um, so when we got to 14, we um, became very naughty really. And we, uh, um, we milked it. So we we came out of school with no qualifications. Um, and I'm not saying it was just because I was a twin. I'm just not academic, Will, you know, simple as. And uh, we, we left school. The funny thing was Sarah and I are very, very different. Uh, Sarah's always been fairly timid, um, very uh, negative in terms of we're, we're only five foot nothing. I mean, I'm five foot three, but we, you know, we grew up at the age of 40, at the age of 21, when you're 18, when you can go in a nightclub, we look 14. Um, and we just um, are very, very different. I had an absolute love for life and people. And at the age of 18, I remember being in my parents' garden and a couple coming over. And this couple, he was a very sweet man. She had the whip out. And he was working really long hours and overtime, but she was chasing the Joneses. She wanted everything. Nothing was good enough. And I remember sitting there, standing there thinking it was a very, it was an important moment, really, because I remember thinking whoever I marry, whoever I meet, I never want them to be under the thumb or put in a position of pressure. I want to have supported them and helped them. And it was part of what happened later, a few, few years later. Anyway, sometime later, uh, when I came out of school, I set up a, char a, a company uh, called Helping Hand, and it's what you do when you don't know what to do. And it was a bit of everything. We were helping, we were looking after. And, and just, just rewinding to the uh, age fourteen, what, what was your um, what was your plan or your intention at that stage, or was one uh, yet to form? Well, it was a very it was very strange that you should say that age because at the age of fourteen, I remember as though it was yesterday, thinking to myself. When do you actually grow up? What does that even mean? Because I couldn't imagine my spirit ever changing. And 
all the grown-ups were so sensible and actually a little bit boring. And to this day, Will, I never did. I took on responsibility, but I'm a, I'm a Peter Pan, but in a woman form. And I, I remember on at the age of 14 thinking there must be a point, maybe it's, you know, just like there's puberty and just like other things happen as you go through life. There must be a point at the switch happens and you become a grown-up. And of course, you take on responsibility. Of course you do. And when you have babies, they are in your care and children are in your care. But the spirit within me has always been that child and, and will be till the day I die. At the age of 14, uh, it was a difficult age. Um, I remember just a little bit later than that, at 15, I started having back problems. Um, and, you know, I was in, it was before my O-levels back then, not GCSEs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, my back was a real problem because it needed clicking all the time. Um, and it was only in 2020, sorry, in 1994, I had surgery eventually, but it began then. So it was quite a hard time uh, with, with with exams and what have you. But anyway, I showed up to exams that I didn't get them. You know, I got used and everything except for music, which was a little bit sad. But, you know, I, I went and I did um, what I was supposed to do. I just didn't pass them. So 14, I was already believing in myself to a degree, although I don't know why. You know, we'd started music when we were very young, but everything I did, I had to try at. And I remember at that age, dreaming, wishing, hoping to become the protege of something. But alas, Julie wasn't going to be a protege as a young adult and a child. Uh, And I had to learn, which happened much later on, that we're all unique, even an identical twin. And that we all have gifts, but we might take a lot longer to determine what they are. Uh, And it also depends who you're surrounded with. Uh, You know, if you're with people that determine you to be a pain and useless, you're not going to, you're not going to understand how to even begin looking for those gifts. But yeah, that's, that that was my 14 year, 14, 15 year old. And then uh, I interrupted, uh, you decided to form a charity as one does as a, uh, a school leader. Um, no, I set up a company. A company, a big company. The company wasn't a charity, just because I didn't know what else to do. And the company meant that I would do anything for anybody. So one of the things I did was look after the riding for the disabled horses, which meant getting up at half past five in the morning, breaking off the ice, da 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 Lots of time to think and be pensive. Um, I also pig sat, I also did some sectarial work, although I wasn't a qualified secretary. I also would go and cook for people and blah, 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 look after old ladies. And then um, not long later, my father retired, semi-retired, and he decided to take the four girls and his wife to Kenya, where mum and dad had um, been brought up and had lived. And so we went and visited where dad was district officer and commissioner. We saw where my grandfather was district officer and commissioner. We saw where my mother was brought up on a farm. We saw where they got married and all this sort of thing. And while we were out there, the four girls went to a place called Turkana, which is like the desert of Kenya. And it's it's actually not a desert because it's on the a massive lake called Lake Rudolph or Lake Turkana, which is the, the size of the bowl of that is the size of our country. Um, and it's got la- old lava fields next to it. And it's just quite amazing. Um, what, but we went in a big army truck with no sides, with loads of people our sort of age. And it was quite an incredible experience. The gentleman running that safari company was the son of the man owned the safari company. But the gentleman running it 
had his own safari company in the off season to Kenya in the Kalahari Desert. And his cook had rolled the vehicle and run away. So he was asking people, this was in the January in Kenya, whether anyone would be interested in flying out to the Kalahari for the beginning of the April season. So anyway, I was very young at the time, I was 20, um, 20, 21, and I basically said yes. So we flew back to the UK and three weeks later in absolute fear and intrepidation, I flew very young out to the Kalahari Desert um, where I knew nobody except for this one man who had run a week's uh, safari into the bush of Kenya for us. Uh, and there I lived. And my life changed dramatically while I was out there in what I learned, how I grew up. It molded a large part of who I am today. Uh, and it was an incredible. I learned that I, I loved property. Mum had said when I was seven, I would get into property because I used to go looking through the estate agent windows. And, you know, back then you were either an estate agent or you were not, not, not in property. Um, and in that fact, many years later, that was the same case as well. And while I was out there, I had a dream about uh, so far, uh, about a property in the mountains, instigated, I think, um, by my faith and also by a Swiss couple on safari who just talked nonstop about their place in the mountains. But part of the dream was uh, included disabled children. I'd been brought up around disabled children because my mother set up Riding for the Disabled Abingdon Group when I was six. So we'd been brought up. And what, what, what exactly is that for people not familiar with the, the programme? Uh, Riding for the Disabled is a charity, that's a national charity, uh, where children of all disabilities can go riding, where it can help them with their balance, it can help them with their, their mentality, it can help them in many, many ways um, to have a better life. And we'd been brought up around these, these children. And I had noticed, I'd helped teach a group when I was 16. And I'd noticed these lovely, lovely children up to the age of 10, one specific girl actually, be, you know, happy and, you know, just full of confidence and obviously brought up in very lovely environments, but then hit an age at school where they were literally teased to bits, where they had the stuffing knocked out of them and they lost every ounce of confidence. And it really affected me. And I obviously had thought about this quite a lot since I was 16 and been shocked by it. And the dream was to get disabled children to the mountains to build up their confidence, to help them believe in who they were, who they are and what they can do. And that's what I did. So. Two years later, I was out skiing in a place called La Clusa in the French Alps. Second time I'd gone skiing in my life. I uh, was with a group, including my parents. And um, an incident happened on the mountain with my twin sister. Uh, she was sadly anorexic at the time. And I just decided not to go back up to the mountains. And I went into an estate agent. Not Again, I'm now 21, looking 14. Um, I went into an estate agent, didn't speak a word of French. And they took me seriously. I was like, really? You know, I wasn't, <laughs> before then I'd, I'd walked into Volvo car ga garages to try and get a car and they wouldn't even let me test drive it. So, you know, this was quite bizarre. Anyway, I got found later on in a cafe with my Filofax shows to my age. And I was just writing down a few figures and they said, what are you doing? At the time I was earning 8,000 pounds gutting fish in a fish farm. What are you doing? And I said, oh, I'll just write down a few figures, I said. And I love numbers, but I give me a spreadsheet and I, I cry, you know, numbers, but I seem to retain the numbers. I used to pray as a child that I would have a uh, photographic memory so that I could pass my exams. 
I do believe I've got a photographic memory now for numbers. So I remember every number of every deal I've ever done. Uh, and so I was doing all these numbers and they just laughed at me. They, looked, they all loved me, they were great, but had I listened to them, Will, that part of my journey wouldn't have begun. And how did you feel at that, that particular time? Like you're you're um, describing sitting in the cafe. Uh, like, oh, like, excited. Um, really full of um, expectation and just my own person. You know, these people around me did, you know, I was 21, couldn't afford the door of a house in the UK. Um, and I had a plan. Now that evening, the guy who ran the ski company, who owned the ski company happened to be coming through town. So I thought, I'll sit next to him at dinner. So I sat next to him and I said, Len, if I were to get a chalet in this, this resort, because the one we were staying in, he owned, would you be interested in renting it? And he said, absolutely, as long as it's four bedrooms as a minimum. Anyway, I'd, I'd shown interest in this four bedroom chalet that hadn't yet been built. And when I got back to England, I got a letter saying, I'm ever so sorry, Miss Barlow, the four bedroom chalet has gone. We've only got a six bedroom left. And I was thinking, it's like Monopoly money. It doesn't matter whether it's 20 bed. I can't seriously afford it in a normal way. So let's work out another way. So I devised a strategy, which is being taught today, but believe you me, wasn't being taught then. So in my head, I devised it, um, whereby I could achieve this buying of this property or acquiring of this property and change the, 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 the direction of my life at the moment. Now, it took a year. When I got home, I actually moved jobs to a, another company, um, but it was all irrelevant because the salaries were not good enough for, for such a, a, um, a purchase. Um, and so the way I did it, I described it like stepping stones across a river. And when we were very little, we used to go camping in the Dodoin and there used to be these stepping stones. And I always say to people, I never believed I'd get to the other side, but I never didn't believe I'd get to the other side. I just concentrated on the journey because I had to. And I said, the stepping stones were very, very, um, they were very important on my journey. And sometimes I'd get to a very pointed step, um, such as when the ski company said, rang me up I knew the property wasn't going to be finished in time they put me in as a uh, somebody that they would be renting they'd be renting my chalet it was in the brochure and uh, it wasn't gonna be finished so they rang me up and I was about to say Len I'm really sorry but and he said oh Jilly I gathered that it won't be finished yet so what we've done is we've created a separate page that will go in as a flyer saying that this property won't actually be uh, available to rent until February and I was like my jaw just opened because I believed I was at a pointed rock where I could do nothing about the fact that it was delayed and I wouldn't have the ski company and um, there were other rocks that were really flat and I would think wow this is a doddle and I'd nearly drowned from pride and that mattered massively because it grew me as a person and even the bit related to Len Silver yes he'd said yes in 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 France but it wasn't until we met in the back of a van at the Oxford Motocross Stadium where his son was racing and signed the contract that I understood what I was doing, you know, that this was real, that this was really happening. And that had been accepted by a bank to this day that I never met in France, Bank Le Henin. Um, and, and so it all started to happen. Did I need a penny of money? Not a cent. To this day, I never needed a cent.
And, and in terms of uh, how how important do you think it was at that point that you you'd been in England, you'd been in Kenya, you'd been in the Alps, um, like, and that those are incredibly different environments culturally, uh, topographically. Uh, obviously, you know, a, a desert and a a mountain are not the same things necessarily. Um, and the green, the green grass of uh, of England, like your uh, those changing environments and and the cultures associated with them, uh, you obviously had to uh, like adjust into that. And and do you think that that is quite a a key part of who you are and how you've been able to move forward? Uh, it's a very interesting question, and I've never been asked that. I think. I was brought up in a, an environment that although was very volatile um, and, and, and angry when there was only us in the house, it was a very open house because mum and dad had been brought in, up in Africa. And in Africa, this is often the way it is. Anybody's welcome. The doors are always open. There's heavings, you know, heaps of people. And it's often heaving with people you don't even know. And my home, my, the farmhouse I grew up in was just like that. So my house is like that. And I think that there's a very, um because of that maybe i mean i don't know i find it very very easy to slip into different culture if i were to be completely honest the hardest part is coming back here and actually when i went to africa i was so aware i might be culturally shocked and i wasn't i just fitted in it was like a hand in a glove that when i got home i struggled immensely with the culture i struggled with the the less friendly people. I struggled with the, the the fact that the pressure was so great for so many so early on. And this is years ago. I mean, today it's a different ball game, isn't it? Uh, when I go to the Alps, there are there are certain places or environments in my world where peace abounds. Africa, I love. I love the people. I love the, the the slow pace of life. I love the adventure, depending on what you're doing, obviously. So whether you're doing charity work or whether it's still an adventure, whether you're out running safaris and you've got to learn how to get back to mountain and your clutch is just gone and you're waiting for somebody to come and fix it in the middle of the bush with the big five around you. But all the clients have disappeared because they've had to go off with the other person. You know, you have to get back 12 hours across the desert on your own in the dark, which you're not normally allowed to do. Game Scout gave you permission. There's all sorts of things that grew me massively out there. And I think when you've been uh, put in a situation of such diversity and such adventure and such something that you've got to step up to the mark in, because otherwise you're going to either drown or, or cry, coming home, it's, a it's not that there's a nothingness, because I love this country, I love the people, I love the beauty of it. I love so much about it. But in those days, you know, I was a young adult. I hadn't experienced much before then. And coming home was hard because everybody else has got on with their life in the same way that they had before you left. And actually for them, it was as though you left yesterday. It's me that had the adventure. It's me that had all these things happen to me. It's me that had to deal with a dead, half dead giraffe and bring it back to life. It was me that had to deal with a, a, a monkey, a resizzi, a pygmy chimp who used to literally jump up and down on my bed and tear everything I ever owned because she was a naughty little girl. And, you know, but was the love of my life at the time, you know? Um, so I think culturally all these places 
have had a massive positive effect on me. The mountains are just unbelievable. You know, so I still own the chalet in the, the Alps, I've had it for 33 years. I went out there only two weekend, weekends ago because I hadn't been there for two years because of COVID to sort it out before the season because I wanted to. And I just sat there going, why don't I live here? You know, but they're all, they're all amazing. And I, I somehow have found myself to fit in very, very easily. It's coming home that's harder. So uh, taking you back to, to that, that time, see, uh, uh, you've you've lived in three countries. You've brought a chalet in a, a country other than where you were born. Uh, you've figured out a creative way of financing it. Um, what what age are you at this point? Twenty one. Twenty one years old. Just twenty two. Okay, so so tell me uh, what what happened next. So what happened next was I, uh, I I said that I'd got a different job from the gutting of the fish. And I was now working for a company called Numerical Algorithms Group, known as NAG. Uh, they were um, dealt with algorithms, didn't even know what that was. And I was um, basically marketing, so marketing a product I didn't understand. And I was now on a £12,000 salary. While I was there, somehow I got headhunted for a company called Risk Decisions in Park End Street in Oxford. And I went for the interview and the only thing I really had on my side was, which is quite a lot, I, I, it's very easy to diss oneself, um, was my character and my mouth. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's what got me jobs. And uh, I ended up with this job at Risk Decisions, which is a company that create risk analysis software. And uh, for the first four months, sorry, for the first month, I would get up in the morning, the alarm would go off and I'd literally cry. I literally was that terrified. And I drive down the Botley Road thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Because there were very few people in this company. They were all boffins. So Art Noble would arrive on his motorbike in his leathers, would wander around the place with holes in his socks, swearing all the time, talking in a way that, I mean, it was a different language. Anyway, at the end of my three months, we had a meeting and he called me in and we had to go over to Oxford Station because they had nowhere to sit down. And he said, Julie, I don't I don't really think this is working. And I said, too, right. It's not working. I said, I can't work with you guys. You're just a nightmare. You don't tell me anything. You you, you wander around as though I'm telepathic and then you, you're swearing all the time. And I said, I don't get any of you. But, you know, thank you for the opportunity. I then said, what do you want me to do with the sales that I've created? And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you, hit, you gave me a target and I've hit it because that's what I do. It doesn't matter that I don't understand it. I hit it. And he, and he just, the whole thing turned around and he said, please stay. I said, oh, I'm, I'm happy to stay, but things have got to change in the office. I couldn't believe I was saying this. I was so young, but I got to the point of being quite terrified with these, these people. They were not unpleasant. They were just very different to me. Mm -hmm. and I had no training. And I said, you, you're going to have to watch your mouth. You're going to have to have a bit more respect. You're going to have to help me, help me understand this product. You stopped me in the, they sent me to JP Morgan onto the trading floor. Well, I was just sat there going, these people are more like animals, no disrespect to them. You know, this is just terrifying. Um, I couldn't even spell analysis. Give me a break, you know. Anyway, things all turn around. I was asked to be sales and marketing manager. I designed a character called Monte Carlo uh, who, who taught people risk analysis in layman's terms. 
And that has made such a difference to my property journey because people don't teach risk analysis properly. They don't teach it in a simple, simple form. What people will learn from me is that everything I teach is simple. There's nothing complicated because I'm very pictorial. Maybe it's because I wasn't academic, but we can be very wise. You know, I believe I'm wise and I'm savvy and I have common sense. I might not be academic. We do not need academia to understand simplicity, the things in a simple form. And so I designed Monte Carlo and it made a massive difference. I stayed there for four years. I then got made redundant because they employed somebody who was the new marketing director who had marketing experience. And that was actually fantastic. I'd somehow been very savvy and, and got insurance for redundancy. So I had a whole year of salary. Um, and it, it, I'd, I'd obviously got the chalet. I'd let the chalet run um, catered for two years, which had been unbelievably horrendous because the people that catered it somehow destroyed lots of things. I then started it self-catered as it has run now for 31 uh by then it would have been 28 years because the ski company had it for five years in the winter season. I then self-catered catered it for two years. And then it's, since then it's been self-catered. So I started that. I made sure that the ski business was running. It's in a ski resort, mm -hmm. a very popular ski resort. So I made sure that was running well. Obviously, I was taking disabled children now to France. I set that charity up after the dream, after acquiring the property the following summer. The first group of disabled children went out there. Uh, we registered, I registered officially, that was 1991, I registered it officially in 94, and in 1996 it won the Childline Award for Great Britain, which was massive, I mean, for the charity. I had no idea about it because you get nominated, and I, you know, I ended up on John Craven's Newsround, for those of you that, of my era, um, and a couple of chat shows on television, you know, we, we had big spreads in um, big magazines, and it was quite, a, quite an experience, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah, that, that was a little bit more of what went a, on. A long way from the farmyard. A long way, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it grew me every time. I love new experiences. So nothing really phases me. I'm not scared of anything, really. Uh, people either accept me or they don't. People either warm to me or they don't. I love people. One of the things I learned in Africa was I absolutely love property, but I love people more. And not long after I got back, I... I wanted really to help different different people. I'd always wanted to go into the prisons since a very young lad, well, not young now, but at the time he got put in Oxford prison at the age of 18, a uh, gentleman who worked with my father's son. And I'd always had this desire to go in and, and, and speak to prisoners and help them. And it was around about that time that I was uh, in church one day and a, an old friend of mine stood up and started talking about the prison stuff, the stuff they were doing in prison. And I was like, I've got to do this. So I ended up um, going to prisons, but it's very different when you go in as a volunteer because you can go to the cells. So you're not just going into a meeting room. You can go anywhere in the prison. So you get your keys. I had keys to go anywhere in the prison. Um, and we ran meetings and they could choose to come to them. And I did that for seven years. And I used to go on a Tuesday and I used to put my phone and my car keys and everything in a, um, in a safe place. And then we'd go through what I called the TARDIS where you went in one area, the door shut, they waited, the next door opened, you got your keys, you went through all the gates and now I was in the prisons. So, so just like the movies? Yeah just like the movies, gate, 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 gate. And, and what was very bizarre, Will, was that when I used to go into the prisons every Tuesday, it was my escape. Complete escape. 
from the world. Into prison. <laughs> I did. I used to go in there, and it was a. I could go to any prison in Great Britain, actually, um, but the one I went to predominantly was Bullingdon, which is a massive prison, which at that time was for um, A classes, um, the extreme. B class is the extreme that have been in prison for four years and now come to B class, C class and, and D class, E class, etc. So we were B, C, D and E. So we had every, every, everything, every type of crime um, in there. And um, we were the only group in the, in the prison that didn't need a warden in with us. And we would have sometimes up to 45 men mm -hmm. and there might be three of us. And I, you know, I had massive experiences, you know, fantastic experiences. I became a speaker in the prisons. When I was um, in 1993, I went to Thailand and I visited my sister and brother-in-law who are missionaries out there. And they lived in the Bundu of Thailand in a place called Sivalai, which isn't, I don't think it's even on the map. Um, many, many things went on while I was out there. I went several times and I wrote a little uh, diary called In the Eyes of a Stranger because I don't like going to countries where I can't speak some of the lingo and I knew nothing. So I could only see, I couldn't, I may as well have been deaf. Much happened while I was out there. People's whole plantations burnt down. We had a young lad that arrived on a motorbike with blood everywhere. Um, you know, we didn't know what was bleeding on the hand, whether it was the wrist cut, the knuckles, we didn't know. And my sister said, Jilly, go upstairs and grab the biggest sanitary towel you can out of the medicine box. On there it went. She then said to me, grab a bike and follow us. And I was going, I haven't got a bike. You should nick one. And I'm like, you know, I'm still very young. I'm like, I can't nick someone's bike, but I did. Um, and, you know, many, many experiences. But while I was out there, they had a conference. And the conference was on, you were sitting on the floor, didn't understand what they were talking about. And Jane and Mike would get up and speak. And all I wanted to do, Will, was get up and speak. And I sat there thinking, Jilly Barlow, what would you get up and speak about? And it was a seed sown. And then when I got back to the UK and started going to prisons, you know, I started speaking. I would lose pounds and pounds and pounds from adrenaline and terror before I'd go into those prisons, not because of the people, but because of me speaking. And it became something I absolutely loved. And I realized that people were engaged. So we had prisoners in there that were on all sorts of drugs, a lot of them antidepressants that can make them sleepy, yet they were engaged. They were engaged with what I spoke about. And sometimes I'd say, Tommy or Billy, you know, listen to this, this is for you. And I loved it. And I ended up speaking an awful lot in prisons in the country. And I go like this because there were four walls surrounding it. Nobody outside could hear. I was doing it for the people inside, but it grew a passion within me to speak. It, it, it helped me see that I could help people. And, what and, and that, that helping people theme seems to be a, a, a essential part of who you are. Uh, so with the disabled children, with the, uh, the prisoners, uh, what, what, um, how did this link uh, back into other things that you were doing? Well, it's, it's, it's bizarre that you should talk about that and, and mention the disabled children and the prisoners because it was about four years later that it dawned on me. I, I read a book um, by Warren Great Blake, I think, Warren Drake, something like that, can't remember. Um, and it, it was a book called Purpose Driven Life. 
a Christian book. And, and I, the first time I read it, straight over my head. Next time I read it, I knew what my purpose was at the end of that book. And I realised that the disabled children holidays and the prisoners were absolutely the same because my heart was to edify people. And my purpose is very simple. It's to help people see the gift that they are, to help people believe in who they are. Because when they get to a point of believing who they are and seeing the gift they are to the world, irrespective of their upbringing and what people have said to them up until this very moment, they have a purpose. And what I love to help people do is get to a place of understanding they have a purpose, believing in who they are, and then finding their passion within their purpose, because that's where life begins. And whether it was the disabled children or whether it was the prisoners, I wanted them to see that they were good, that the disabled children, irrespective of what they could and couldn't do, they got to the mountains. So if they got, none of them came with their parents from the age of six to the age of 18, no one, there was one lad in 15 years that came with his father because he couldn't speak, he couldn't eat, and it was a very different scenario, but no other parent came with them, and some of them were as young as six. Would I have gone abroad at the age of six? I doubt it very much without my parents. But these children, you know, I wanted them to understand, irrespective of their physical uh, problems, if they had their mind right, if they, if they could get to France, the world was just as much their oyster as it was mine. And with the prisoners, yes, they were serving time. And maybe they deserved to. It wasn't my business to judge them. Mm -hmm. But actually, if they could turn their mindset to a point, if they needed to, they might be there already. I wanted them to believe in who they were and understand that they were good people. They've made mistakes. You know what? I have in the past been on my phone in a car. We look at that man, poor man, who five years ago, whenever it was, changed the music on his phone, hit a car load, killed a whole family, got put in prison for 10 years. You know what? Your life can turn around in an instance by mistake, even if it wasn't intentional and it was careless. And so many you know, are inside for reasons that they shouldn't be, maybe, according to Jilly. You know, some are in there because they should be. And some are in there because they've been brought up in a way that we wouldn't believe. You know, you try you try having a normal life if from the age of two you've had whiskey syringed into your mouth. You know, it's it's horrific. But they are able, you know, they serve their time. They understand the art of forgiveness of others and within themselves to forgive themselves. And it's about realizing that they have hope, there is hope. And that when they get out, that actually it's, it, it's understanding good things can happen for them too. It doesn't have to be that it doesn't. And, 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 and it, but it starts in believing in yourself. And so it was bizarre because whether disabled children or disabled adults, which is the next leg of the story, or, or a different story, or whether it's people who have done wrong by the by the the world and the the courts, we still want them to believe in who they are. And I've got some of I've got one of my biggest deals came out of prison, in terms of a property, and and yeah, it, it's. An what, what was happening um, in the background, property wise? 
uh, in the background property wise, um, I had uh, in 1992, um, I had found, a, a, knew somebody with a piece of land. Um, I- So where, where is this land? Uh, in Oxfordshire. Yes. Um, and I approached them again, one of my favorite strategies in the world is purchase lease, lease options because it gives every single person in the world the opportunity to acquire property. And of course that wasn't being taught. The teachers of today were in nappies back then. Uh, there was no property teaching. So I, I approached the owner and I said, if I, if I pay you three times its value, can I do it in the next 10 years and take over the land? And they said, yes. I had no idea this was an option. I had no idea the solicitors has exchanged a pound. Um, I then uh, built a house uh, on this land. I still live there today. That was in 1992. So I did my first purchase lease option in the UK in 1992. Um, and that was really exciting because I built it. I learned to swing a trowel. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very volatile time again for me then and I would sleep on the scaffolding behind the chimney when it got warmer to be safe. Um, and I felt very safe because it was my place. I was now, I don't know how old I was now, not, not a lot older, um, 1992. Um, yeah, so I was 24, something like 23, 24, something like that. So now I owned my own home. Um, and I, I live very close to Williams Grand Prix. Before then, it was a pharmaceutical company, Janssen's Pharmaceutical, so many people wanting to stay there. So at that very young age where HMOs weren't even a thing, I had um, three people living in my house from, from Janssen's Pharmaceutical and then Williams. Uh, and actually, I think it was Williams even back then. And um, they were paying me 365 pounds. This is like in 1992 for a room with a shared bathroom, three of them. I mean, that's a lot of money back then. Mm. £165, mm. maybe £25 per room, shared bathroom, shared kitchen. So I was already generating income that was crazy. Uh, and, and what was the finance and the, the background to this? Well, the finance was, because I hadn't had to pay for the land, um, I had... Uh, basically done a deal whereby I ended up paying a bit that meant that they allowed me to go on the deeds so I could get a mortgage and I was able to get a full mortgage because they saw the property I only needed a mortgage for the build of 90 grand but they already saw the property value being 150 so mm -hmm. I never needed a deposit mm -hmm. so I bought it without a deposit but hadn't yet paid for the land because I, I, I there may be rules now but I just negotiated. In actual fact, with an option, there are no rules. It is all negotiation. So that was amazing. Uh, no money in. And I have to say that until today, I've only ever put 38 grand into one property in my life. Because I learned to do these strategies whereby, well, I couldn't. Creative financing strategies. Yeah, and there are so many that aren't being taught well. It staggers me. In all the big property courses out there, there are certain strategies that people don't know anything about. Weird, very strange, but very and, exciting. And, and so you you have a place to live. Uh, you've got a chalet, uh, that a six-bed chalet in the Alps. Um, what, what else are you doing with your day now that you've got the house 
built and it's filled with uh, with people paying uh, paying rent. Okay, so that was the year that I, I went traveling in Egypt um, with a friend of mine. And while we were out there, I met my husband-to-be. Uh, and I did actually say at the time I'd never marry him <laughs> because he didn't hold my hand and you have to hold my hand. But I did, I ended up marrying him. And uh, I carried on doing Sophia, Holiday, Sophia Holidays, which was the uh, charity for disabled children. No, sorry, Sophia, Holid Sophia was the chalet. Sada was the uh, charity, Sophia's Alpine Disabled Adventures. Um, and uh, the story of the, actually just going back slightly, of the naming of the chalet was actually quite crucial as well. Because I'd always wanted, I wanted to call it Chalet Christina after my grandmother, my mother's mother. But there were too many Christina, Christianas, Christinas, etc., out there, so I wasn't allowed to. So I thought, what's my favourite girl's name? Favourite girl's name is Sophie. Very soft, very oh, just love it. Um, but Chalet Sophie sounded odd, so I called it Chalet Sophia. And I had no idea, honest, I had no idea that it means wisdom of God. So it was the real cherry on the top for me. Um, so everything was called Sophia. So I had a company called Sophia Investments. I had Sophia Holidays and I had Sada, which was Sophia's Alpine Disabled Adventures, which was a registered charity. Um, and what was going on in the background then was I started to help people learn how to invest wisely because there were so many off-plan opportunities for people that were really messing with people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I was helping people to... So if people wanted eco projects i would help them find trees um, that were which were good which were not con companies and so i was doing a bit of that which was generating a bit of commission for me um, i wasn't making any money on the chalet because at that time swallow hard uh interest rates were 15 percent these lovely youngsters these days who are worried that it's gone from two to three make me have a little chuckle. And when I got, when I built this house and I ended up with a mortgage, it was 17% in this country. So, you know, we, people of my era, you know, you just accepted it. It was no big deal. It was just that the calculations were done on different, a different number. Um, and so I'd learned that the ski company in the first five years paid, they paid me 13,000 pounds in advance of every season, plus bills, plus 5% for every season that went on. I knew absolutely. So what was happening here, Will, was at a very young age, I was understanding the way things could work simply when a ski company in and they comes in and they take the whole season they tell you what they're going to pay you every year plus five percent and they're going to pay you all bills how simple is that because you then do the calculation you go right my interest rate's 15 percent in france what do i have left that i've got to pay so i would take the disabled children away for one two or three weeks and i'd know that the remaining months of the year were there to make money to cover the rest of the mortgage end of story but the wonderful thing was it was a repayment mortgage. So 15 years later, no more, no mortgage. So it was very clean. And I learned to do things in a very methodical way without realizing I was. So I'm a doer. I have to work with people that if they're gonna, if they say they're gonna do something, they do it. Because if I've got a list of things to do, everybody that's ever worked with me will know that I do it. I do it. So I had marketing stuff to do before the end of Sunday. Didn't matter whether I didn't do it till Sunday evening. It's done. It's sent before Monday. Have to do it. And I found that that was something that came very naturally to me. Simplicity. My mantra at that time was, before I did the chalet, when I was sitting in that cafe with that file of facts, 
was I'm going to do it. The question is how? And when I speak now, I speak a lot on Clubhouse, um, which I love because it's free for everybody. I say to them, if you go away with that mantra or you learn that mantra or you train yourself to have that mantra, you will succeed. And then I say to them, but you have to decide what success means to you because for me, it's a good life. A good life, it doesn't necessarily mean money, but money generally helps for that good life because we're living in a society where we can't live under a tree. And unfortunately, the soil is wrecked to just be able to grow self-produce all the time. But it's a good life. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's that for everybody, but they just don't realise that. It's camouflage and, and changes for different, in different re for different reasons. And, and for someone who has so much energy, uh, Jilly, what, what, is, what do you do for fun? <gasps> I do so much for fun. So one of the things I'm really blessed with is that I have a nine-day week. Most people have a seven day week. And so I have so much time, even when I'm really busy. I don't know if you have found that in life. The more you do, the more time you have to do things. And so what I can fit into a day or into two days is extraordinary. But I do also love to relax. I love watching movies. Um, I love putting a sheet outside the window and getting the um, projector out and watching a movie in the garden. I love to light the log fire in the winter and snuggle up. I don't have to be busy. I haven't got ADHD. I just love doing stuff. I love adventure. So to do, what do I do? So I do Ciroc. I dance. Love dancing. I'll do any type of dancing um, or try any type of dancing. Doesn't mean I can do it. Um, I love music. So I play cello. Um, I started the cello when I was seven, was always pretty rubbish at it, um, but loved it. And I've, my, I had to sell my cello, got given a really nice cello in a lady's will many years ago. And then I had to sell it when times were tough. And for my 50th, my son bought me an electric cello, which is just back there. I love putting on YouTube and, and playing to Andre Bocelli or any, any pop things. I just love that. I'm also learning to fly. When I was in Africa, um, Adam let me fly his plane and... I really got a feel for it in 1987 when I was out there, but I never did because it was, I was, I, I'm not very good at spending money on myself. Um, and I just thought, nah, back then you needed 40 hours a year to keep your license up. What's really exciting now is it's a license for life. You don't have to do any hours every second year, but every other year you have to have done 12. If you don't do 12, you do a little exam in the, in the air and you, your license remains. So it's not expensive like it, like it used to be. And I traded um, flying lessons for my year long property course with the owner of the uh, airport. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm about to be going solo. So um, when I'm up in the air, life stops. Mm -hmm. I have to concentrate, Will. <laughs> and Joey, to close the, uh, the episode off, um, could, could you give us a, a brief story about a, a student um, and, and you know, what, what's happened and what's changed? Um, maybe a little bit of an illustration of the type of uh, training process and what the transformation involved. Yes, of course. So um, I do various courses. Um, one of the things I... I started courses only because people asked me to. My attitude was, come on, there's so much out there. But I do teach in a very different way. I'm very, very, um, a mentor really. So I help people, I hold their hands. But the beginning of, um, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got so many students that, that are transformed really. And, 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 and by that, I don't mean just in their financial 
uh, areas, but in their minds, because it's so important to me that they realize their worth, that they realize their value, that they realize their capabilities, that, that the lack of ability comes when you don't believe in who you are and you surround yourself with people that convince you you're right if you think you can't do something. People that are tainted by bad things that have gone on, whether it's coronavirus or Brexit, whether it's there in 2007 and eight, where there was a crash and people lost so much mm -hmm. of their property. Mm -hmm. People have learned from all of that. And what we want to go in and, and do is, is show them what's possible mm -hmm. and get them to a place where for every negative thought they have, they have two positive thoughts. So they train their brain to realize that they can do this. And what's really exciting is it doesn't have to take years. You see, a lot, of, sorry. So uh, in terms of uh, a specific uh, student, um, if you could share their story and, um, uh, sorry to put you on the spot. No, I, I, I should have I should have sent that through in the, the, the preparation. No, it's absolutely fine. So one specific student, very young, uh, didn't want to go to university, was working in Marks and Spencer's as part-time job whilst uh, drumming at, at college, uh, doing music. And I, I always teach them to, you see, I, I'll teach any age. I love it. I used to have um, a class that was free between five and six on a Wednesday for anybody aged the youngest that they want to be up to about 23. And, 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 and so this particular lad had said, I said, always tell everybody what you do. So he was helping a disabled lady shop and uh, she got used to him helping her. So she always asked for him. And she told him one day and she said, please, please buy the house I'm living in. I've lived there for 16 years and my landlord's selling it. And he said, okay, well, can you give me your landlord's details? So obviously I helped, I went to, and we, we, the, the gentleman said, do sit down um, and let's have a chat. So we sat down and we described this particular strategy and uh, the gentleman said, well, that'd be absolutely fine, but I'll need at least three grand. Upon which this person said, well, that should be fine. You know, I'm sure we can work with that. Whereas many would say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly, oh, that's a bit too heavy. You know, anyway, he ended up with this 13-bed uh, property in Oxford sleep that now sleeps 16 with an option to purchase it. He's in the throes now five years on of purchasing it. Uh, he's never, ever, obviously, he didn't have to put a penny into it. It was for a pound. Um, because its value has gone up exponentially, um, potentially he won't have to put any deposit in because I'll give him 75% of the new value. In the meantime, he acquired another property, which was a minging six-bed HMO. He did it slightly differently with a different strategy, thus owns it already um, with no money in. Uh, and he turned it from a minging HMO by using investor money to do it up into serviced accommodation, whereby in his first year, he generated 136,000 profits of between two and five a month. So, no, sorry, two and eight. So averaging four grand a month before COVID. Um, so did absolutely fantastically. Is in the throes now of um, acquiring, uh, having had it as an option uh, of buying a beautiful villa in Italy, uh, which will be done up, part of it's done up already. So this person was 16 when he started, he's 22 now. He has over a two million pound portfolio and is about to buy for cash a property in Italy um, in a beautiful place called Singoli. So what 
what was wonderful to see here was this was a person that hadn't gone to, gone to university, was living uh, a life doing music. Now the arts and music, as we know, either pay phenomenally if you hit that top 5% or don't pay. And I want people to go out and do what they're passionate about. I want my eldest boy, if he wants to, to carry on and do street dance, which is what he is, he, he's a street dancer. Mm -hmm. he, he had a, a desire once to, to, to teach disabled people to street dance. Now, whether it's him or whether it's this other lad who's a musician, whether it's other people, whatever it is they have in their heart to do, I want them to go out and be passionate about it. With something like this, you can all do that. And, and to see, one of my students, this is just one, and obviously this was four, um, uh, six years ago that he started. It's, it's just mind blowing. He's built a massive recording studio now. He's about to do podcasts. Cool. He's, um, you know, he, it, it's wonderful to see that he can go out and do things like the things that he loves and, and is passionate about. Well, Julie Barlow, that, that's fantastic. Uh, so just once again, if someone's wanting to find out more uh, about you or indeed uh, investigate the mentoring training options available, what, what was the website address again, please? It's juliebarlow.com, spelled G-I-L-L-I-E, Barlow, B-A-R-L-O-W.com. Well, that's fantastic. I'm Will Mallow. This is My Property World. Julie Barlow, fantastic. Thank you, Will. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.